Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Ryan Jenkins. He's a 12-time Welsh national champion, two-time national British champion, and holds a gold, silver, and bronze from the Commonwealth Games. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. So obviously I've had the opportunity to meet you beforehand and to sample uh, your exploits of table tennis. But for the listeners that haven't had a chance to meet you, can you kind of divulge how you got into table tennis in the first place? Yeah, I first started when I was seven at Astrid Ronda Boys and Girls Club. And that was a chance for me to try all different sports. Um, obviously football, um, darts, table tennis, pool, you know, a wide range of sports I was able to try out. And from there, sort of table tennis grabbed me. Obviously, I was good at it, which was helpful. But yeah, I had this sort of um, ability just to hit that ball in different ways and progress quite fast compared to some of the other sports and before I knew it I was in the Welsh squad and things sort of progressed out of hand and here we are. But Ryan some might obviously the the, the British listeners would be intrigued to see that obviously you are South Wales. how come you didn't go down maybe the route of picking up a rugby ball as well? It got to the age of like sort of 13, 14 when I played rugby and football at school and I'm from local clubs. Cardiff City were looking at me with the, the football. They were asking me to come down for some trials. I was doing quite well at the football. Table tennis sort of was a different option. Um, obviously not as glamorous for many people. Obviously not the rewards that youngsters sometimes look towards. But my dad was quite inspirational in helping me decide, you know, my future and how many people go down the route of the biggest sports like football uh, and rugby and, and don't succeed. And with table tennis, I was succeeding. I was 14. I was in the Welsh senior team, just about to do my GCSEs and then go off to China to play the World Championships. So I was getting quite high in the game already at a 14-year-old. And yeah, I sort of took the chance of going to a a lesser minority sport and trying to succeed rather than maybe one of the biggest sports and not succeeding. But what, in terms of that, Ryan, what are kind of some of the limiting factors that you've had to overcome as an athlete in table tennis against the likes of, say, the Asians? Yeah, coaching in, in Britain is obviously at a disadvantage compared to the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans. I mean, table tennis is everywhere there. I've been there many times coaching and, and practicing. And it's, it's in more schools, it's in every you know, street corner. You know, people are playing the game all the time. It's, it's in the culture, just like rugby is in New Zealand, soccer is in Brazil, and it's, you know, it's, part of the, it's part of the culture there. So in Britain, it's not. You know, it's, it's very much a, a hobby sport. People play on holidays, people play in you know, the garages at home. So it's, it's overcoming those factors of trying to break the, the mold and break the barriers that are there for you and yeah I sort of done that myself even though I didn't hit the top 10 in the world I got to 170 in the world which is obviously quite the way off you know the top players in the world but still I was on the world circuit and winning Commonwealth medals but not quite doing it at the top of the game but that was obviously through different factors growing up. But if we take a step back now right and talk about obviously you were saying that you were already in the senior squad and doing your GCSEs, what were kind of the limiting factors at that time, obviously balancing your education, but also having to compete at a high level in sport? Yeah, um, I was never great in school. Um, that came to me later on. I went to university afterwards and as a 23-year-old. As a so I was never really interested in, in getting the qualifications, even though now with children myself and with obviously the young players in Wales, I do get them to, to look at, uh, at their education as well as sport. But I was just solely focused on being a sports person. Table tennis, um, you know, sort of just got out of control, really. I was practicing every day. But, yeah, the limitations is who to practice with because I was a little bit ahead of my time 
so I had to search out some of the senior players to practice with. I had to get my dad to drive me to Bristol, to um, to Plymouth, up to Nottingham, and practice with the best best in England. And I had to do that little bit extra, really, and that's dedication for myself, but also my family. They put a lot into it. Obviously, after myself, my brother came through the pathway as well, and we both were in the team that won medals in the Commonwealth for Wales. But from an outside perspective, Ryan, do you think it is um, maybe an athlete's kind of perception that we are single-minded and obviously driven, but obviously from being an athlete myself, you've got to have that backing from the family. And as you, you attested to there, you've got to have them 100% committed in to you achieving because, like you said, that you've got thousands of miles to cover just for training. Yeah, there's not many players that I've seen in table tennis. Um, I can't really speak for other sports, but in table tennis, there's not many players who have made it big, I say make, make it big, on the world stage without parental support at some stage. Um, my dad used to do a night shift. He works in, in Fords in Bridgen, done his night shift. He used to come home at seven in the morning and eight o'clock we'd be off somewhere and he'd have to sleep in the car while I was competing in the tournament, um, which was usually in England or could have been Scotland or sometimes even in, in Europe. So, um, yeah, that sort of dedication. I say my dad because he was the driver, but my mother was there, you know, was, uh, feeding us, make sure we get getting to sleep on time. And so as a, as a whole team, yeah, the backing was there. And that's always easier. It takes a little bit of burden off yourself as a competitor just to focus on on competing because all the other the trimmings around travelling and, and getting places is all taken care of by your parents. And now that you've kind of gone into coaching as well, what is kind of your aspirations for the sport going forward? Do you see it has a chance to, in terms of it as a sport itself, do you see Britain ever catching up with the bigger nations or do you think it's got to maybe just fine-tune itself and probably mix and match with, say, countries of, of, of similar standard? I think we are making strides towards China, who are the best uh, table dance nation. Germany are almost there um, and England are just behind Germany. And as a a British team, you only come together every four years. Um, obviously, for the Olympics, we don't come together any other time. And the last Olympics, there were three English players in the team. So we've got to try and break that mould. And we have done in the past, there has been Welsh players amongst the, the British team. And they uh, they finished third in the, in the recent World Cup held in London last week. Um, so they're almost there. You know, they can compete with all the other nations, but China is that little bit ahead of everyone else in the world. So... You know, with China having millions and millions of players compared to Britain, we've got, you know, thousands of players. You know, there's a big gap there. But if we, we only need three good players to come together at the same time. So it depends on the generation. It depends if we can get those players through uh, to the right clubs. And those clubs are based in Europe. And that's what I had to do a lot of my training between the ages of 16 and 26. I was in Europe competing in the European leagues and in Denmark, in Switzerland, in Germany. And that's the only option for us at this moment until Table Tennis in Britain decides to, uh, to, you know, to ramp things up and we get uh, sort of a level foot in some of the other countries. But Ryan, from an, another perspective now, do you think, and this is a very political argument in terms of sport, do you think maybe the English players have a significant advantage over the rest of the island with it being centralised in Sheffield? Well, obviously the more players, you know, I keep calling it the big brother. You know, they look after us uh, in some respects when we're trying to um, do joint training and, and they allow us in, you know, to train with them. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more clubs, there's a lot more coaches, you know, so there's a lot more support there for their players. We've got to try and, we, tr we train harder in some respects to make sure we keep up with the top English players. Um, and, you know, we can do it uh Every now and again, we get a player from Wales coming through to, to match the English standard. Like We've got an 11-year-old at the moment, a young girl called Anna Hersey, who's going to the Commonwealth Games. Um, and she's European champion for her age. And she's, you know, she can beat the top English 18 and 20-year-olds. So 
it does happen. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but we can compete um, on a British level. But yeah, it's few and far between, unfortunately. But what could Wales possibly implement? To would it be a case of replicating what England has done, or maybe going a step further? Obviously, the Chinese model probably wouldn't work because, like you said, the player development and recruitment, and obviously just having access to that amount of people isn't there. But what could they do to be able to ramp it up that we are then competing at world, obviously Olympic level? Mm-hmm. I think the the club uh, structure in, in Great Britain needs to improve because all the best British players go abroad to earn money, um, you know, to get a living, and all, but also for the practice and the culture is seen as a more important sport in leagues like Germany and Belgium, uh, and that's why I played last year in Belgium. And the club then is able to tap into the, the community, get lots of sponsors, there's lots of members, they can pay the players. But yeah, we do it in Britain, but it's on a very, you know, it's on a lower level. There's, um, there's not much money. Obviously, if players play the British League, they don't get money to do that. It's just for, for progress uh, with the game. So yeah, it's not all about money. I realise that, but players have to live. You know, you've got to try and make a living if you want to be a professional sportsman. So you have to, at the moment... The best, you know, the top three English guys who I spoke about earlier all live abroad and compete in, in leagues in, on the continent. But then, Ryan, the argument to that would be you, you say money is not the be all and end of it for sport, but then you could argue, in essence, if we say single out China as an example, because they've got that amount of people, you could say it was state funded. In a way, it probably is. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know, but they are probably, in a way, doing that for their players. Yeah, what they got in China is so cutthroat. There, where if a player moves up the ranks from from city to regional, regional to national, they get obviously money depending on where they are in the game. So the family are pushing the player forward as much as they can. So, they, you know, if they don't train hard, they're out. You know, I was in Shanghai in October, and if anyone fell below the expectation of, of the way they trained, we, you didn't see them the following day. So it's very, very brutal. But, yeah, it works because there's another 100 people waiting for that one spot that's just been vacated. So there's not that level of, of importance in, in Britain with table tennis. There's a lot of players in my, my program in Wales who don't, compete to the right standard but I can't get rid of them so i got to try and work with that and try and educate them to be better to, to, to work harder otherwise they won't get the, the success in the future but you know it's, it's a tough it's a tough sell to some people to train hard because they they got so many distractions you know table tennis you know obviously doesn't bring some, you know, some of the fortunes that that they see on social media and, and, and on the TV but yeah, so that's the, the difference, really, with something like the programme in China compared to the programme in Wales. But would would you not agree with this statement, Ryan, that it's maybe a two-pronged... Um, how would I put it across now? But a two-pronged argument that, obviously, like you say, the players are somewhat not as committed as they probably should be. But do you think that it is a you can probably say generational thing or a societal thing where maybe the youngsters have this sense of entitlement. Okay. I'm good enough to get to national level. I'm going to rest on my laurels and accept all that's, that's good enough. I don't need to work hard now, but on the other stand, on the other essence and the other argument where I would probably say to people coming through the ranks now is okay you're not getting the recompense that, say, football and to some lesser degree rugby has in that, obviously, the media coverage, obviously the monetary thing that comes with it. But is it accepting that there's some prestige of representing your country and the, to some or less, maybe lesser degree, that you get to travel the world? Uh, and, and, well, that's in some way, payment, because you're not having to pay for that privilege. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, uh, why else would 
a lot of, you know people play table tennis. You know, you go to the Commonwealth Games, you go to the Olympic Games, you go to the World Championships. You know, great experiences meeting people all over the world. And if you get into the you know the top hundred or top fifty in the world, you earn very good money. The top ten in the world are million, millionaires in table tennis. At the top of the game is fantastic rewards. And if you look at football and rugby, I know I brought them up. There's only a few percent that make it. You know, make it in the Premiership in football. And there's only a few percent that make it in the Premiership in rugby. The rest um, will make a living, no doubt. But um, yeah, obviously it, it does fall dramatically um, from the heights of the, the Premiership in both of those uh, sports. So if you make it to the top of the game in tennis, it's great reward, rewards. You know, the, the best players are on a lot of money with endorsements. Um, the World Tour now, if you win the finals in the World Tour, you get a million dollars. You know, it's huge money in table tennis. But getting someone from playing ping pong at home or in school to the top of the tree, that's the battle because, you know, there's 5,000 registered players in Wales. So there's a small, you know, pot of, of players to, to choose from. And then, you know, the, the, like the Welsh Championships, there'll be, I don't know, maybe 200 people there competing at the Welsh Championships. It's a very small pond. And then when players go up to, to the big sea uh, out in Europe or even the world, they get beat easy. They haven't got the tools to deal with it. And then that's the battle we have is can we keep players in the game long enough um, you know, for them to succeed at, at uh, a higher level. But for them to succeed, Ryan, is it giving them the tools, early doors and making them have that, well, not adversity, but having to come up up against adversity early on and having those pitfalls to be able to go on and maybe maybe reflect and, and, and progress and not maybe look at... So I think maybe sport is probably um, a demon of its own success in terms of a lot of times, and you could say table tennis, you could probably name any sport, but it focuses solely on the result and sometimes forgets about the process. Yeah, true. I mean, being head coach for nine years, I've seen that, you know, every single month of my, my coaching career where people want quick results. They adapt the game for those quick results. They don't think about the long-term uh, benefit of keeping good technique and working on their footwork and, you know, working on their power and spin and placement and variation. They just want the quick results. And, you know, the game does suffer for those results and I understand why I've been there as a player myself I've been there as a parent to my son who played and obviously I've been there as coach so I've seen it all different ways why people train in a certain way and why they enter certain tournaments and why they go down a certain route but yeah you know the best players will think long term they won't think about success at cadet level or junior level they think of success at senior level and, um, and that's what I keep t- telling people to, to work towards the senior game but why why do you think that is a problem more so in, in table tennis that people are fixated on getting that quick re- results? Because if you look at it from the outside, well, yeah, you've achieved well at cadet level. Yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, you've not achieved anything. Mm, that's right, yeah. I mean, I think probably because without thinking about it, you know, for the length of time, just off the top of my head, it's probably because the Timberlands calendar is based around tournaments. There's a tournament every weekend around the around the uh, the country. There'll be one in Liverpool coming up shortly, then one in Blackpool. And it just moves around the country. People get ranking points. They obviously want to go up the list. They want to be top, you know, top ten in Britain or or even top ten in Wales. I say, and that's you know that then gets them selected for the Welsh teams to go and compete around you know Europe and the world. So that's why people want that success to get the benefits of being selection at cadet and junior level. Um, so yeah, that's why I think that happens. But yeah, long-term success is obviously more important because you, I've seen so many people that have been the best cadets and the best juniors, and and then when they get to university age, they you know they 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 leave the game and they don't make it to the the higher points. But then Ryan, would would you not agree that? It is from that essence. Do you think that obviously that being eccentric on the result process? Do you think that some of the table tennis players are focusing 
too much on their ranking points. And obviously, I don't know if this is the case that they're competing every single week. Okay, there might be somebody that is that case. And focusing, as a result, more obviously on the results process of it to be able to get selected. But losing out on the process of getting in the, the amount of training that's going to benefit them long term. Yeah, I mean, I keep telling my, um, my I was going to say children, my, my players to focus on practice more than tournaments. Tournaments are important. You know, you put into into play what you've been working on throughout the you know the last few weeks. It's a time to test things, a time to test your serves, a time to test you know your shot selection, and a time to you know you can't really replicate being nervous uh, in practice. It's very difficult uh, when you're holding the bat because it's all centered around the, the feel of the ball and you know the fast reactions and when you're nervous things do change you, you know your mind changes uh, so yeah so you got to play tournaments but yeah I keep telling my, my players please practice on weekends please you know make sure that um, you're not focusing solely on competing because yeah you need to get the hours in and it's quite relentless you know you got to play my players in the Welsh squad they play every single day they play every single weekend, so it's pretty relentless. Year after year after year, there's no off season anymore. The calendar goes right, year, you know, right around. Maybe there's a bit of a break in beginning of August, but um, it's eleven and a half months of the year that they're competing and playing. So there's no off season as such anymore. It used to be the case when I was young. It used to get to May and then there'd be a break until end of August, September time. But things have become a little bit more congested. But if we talk about it from a, maybe a mental perspective and also probably a little bit of health now, does that not then now have a taxing implications on the players coming through? It does, yeah. As we know, rest is an important part of the programme. So I've got to pull the players back from time to time um, and make sure that they get the rest they need. But that's why I think people find it hard to stay in the game long term is because it's quite you know, full on, it's relentless um, playing all the time. Even for the parents and they get fed up of the costs involved because they're playing you know, every weekend. Um, so yeah, we try and take that burden off them by trying to give them grants and sponsorships uh, through the governing body but um, that's only to the top few players in each category. Otherwise, you know, you've got to do it yourself and and that's why the the, you know, the drop off happens, and equipment's getting it more expensive. You know, a, a, a bat with two rubbers on these days costs about two hundred pound. So you know, things things are getting more expensive. You know, each and every year. But what? But in terms of equipment, Ryan, now, how much scientifically has the bat changed in your career? Yeah, there's not a great deal in my career. Um, you know, it's a wooden, a wooden blade. Uh, you got a red rubber and black rubber. Um, technology has altered a little bit. There's certain companies bringing up new rubbers, you know, to enhance. Uh, you know, every couple of years. But yeah, you know, it's um, there's a lot of combinations. You got some with pimples, some without pimples. There's different variations. You can have attackers and defenders. So good players can play all those styles. But yeah, um, I see the price increase because. Um, for me, when I was younger, a bat would probably cost about 30, 40 pounds. But yeah, it's probably about two to 400 pounds these days. So yeah, it's quite expensive. And, and the kids, they want, you know, they want a racket and then they want a spare racket and they break bats. You know, if you hit the table, you break a bat. If you throw, you know, people are more aggressive these days and they lose their cool quite easy. So bats flying left, right and center. So it can be expensive for parents. From that respect, uh, Ryan, with people breaking equipment, do you think it's because, and this is maybe you don't, I, I've never seen it, be it from an Olympic standpoint, watching table tennis, anybody break equipment, but do you think it's because the youngsters obviously are more hot-headed, but they see it, or you could call it their cousin, you know, the te tennis players breaking rackets left, right, and centre. Obviously, mm -hmm. those players have money, they sponsored they win, so replacing a tennis racket is no big deal. But do you think it's because they see it commonplace on television, athletes doing things like that, oh, I'll do it, and not think of the consequences of obviously the price of equipment? Yeah, I think you're right. Very rare you'd see it at Olympic Games or World Championships. You do see it now and again, but very rare. 
But um, yeah, they're sponsored, so yeah, easy to uh, replace. But some of the Welsh athletes will be sponsored by companies, but then you've got a, an image to protect. So it's it's obviously not great if you if you're destroying um, free equipment uh, given to you by sponsors. But I think coming back down to the sport, you know, you you're a meter away from your your opponent. There's a little bit of talk going on when you're toning down and there's a little bit of not quite as bad as what happens in cricket um, where people are, you know, goading each other and trying to rev each other up. But there's a bit of that, you know, because you're in the same vicinity as, as your opponent. Um, there's a lot of eyeballing. There's a lot of, uh, you know, um, sort of gamesmanship when you're playing someone. So people's um, people's nerves are on, on hook and uh, people are spilling over sometimes and it's a fine line between being like aggressive and, and playing your game with fist pumps and everything and and then spilling over and you know throwing your back on the table and getting a yellow card well in terms of yellow card now Ryan that you've brought mm-hmm. it up yeah. what is kind of the penalty with that regard yellow card you can get a yellow card for swearing for um, boozing the table boozing um, you know your, your racket um Smacking the ball away if you're frustrated, um, boozing the umpire maybe, or you know, these sort of things, uh, you get a yellow card. If it happens a second time in a match, you get a red card, um, and that's it, then you've got to default the game. Um, but in, in Wales, we brought something in. It was happening a little bit of ill discipline with the kids. So we said if you accumulate five yellow cards, and they can happen quite easy, even though you shouldn't, you know, with frustration, you just check it back on the table and walk back to your coach to get some advice, and that was a yellow card. So we were stamping those things out. And but if you get five yellow cards now, you you get a ban. So you know there's consequence now to the players if they can't keep themselves in check. But in terms of the yellow card, is it something more recently table tennis has adopted, or has it been in the, has it been there ever present throughout your career? Always been there, and I have to admit, as a player, I got my fair share of a few yellows here and there. So I can't, you know. You, but yeah, as a coach, you try and obviously get the players to do uh, what you say rather than what you do. So um, yeah, so um, it's always been there. Um, there. There is consequence to when you over, overstep the mark. Well, rightly so. Mm. But in terms of n- now, you also got. That's how we've met. You've gone into schools, obviously. The kids' discipline at times that obviously high schools is, well, as you know, can overspill <laughs> at times and yeah. then quite easily get frustrated. Yeah. Would you say that would probably be a good rule to implement at obviously school level? Yeah, I'm running a schools competition on the 14th of March. And um, yeah, it's obviously with schools. And the equipment, obviously, it's quite basic equipment because obviously it's expensive. To have. You can't have 200 pound bats for each each uh, pupil. So that's, the bats are basic, um, but that tempts them to sort of pick at the bats. Uh, they hit the bats on the table. And sometimes not um, not knowing what they're doing, it's just sort of, sort of waiting for the ball to get picked up and they're, they're you know, banging the table with the bat. And, but yeah, when we run the competition, we'll obviously implement those um, standards and make sure that people get in the right habits as they go along because if they play bigger tournaments uh, in the future they'll have to obviously they'll have a proper umpire and they'll have to adhere to the rules then so why not start off with good habits right from the beginning and obviously with you, you, you coming into schools have you seen from day one day one to I don't know future down the line a massive improvement in some of the players I, I see a quick improvement from someone starting table tennis to get into a sort of um, a regional level or county level. I see a big improvement. It's easy to get good at table tennis. You know, as long as you've got the hand-eye coordination and you understand a bit of spin, uh, you can develop serves very quick and all of a sudden you're becoming a, a good player very quick. So it's making sure, you know, we, me and my coaches identify those, those talents, get them into a club so they can practice, you know, most nights and then streamline them into the Welsh squad then. But it's, pretty easy to get good at table tennis um, as long as you keep practicing and put the hours in understand the spin is the main thing and do you think well this is probably generalisation from the school I'm at do you think that they once they get hooked on it as you attested to earlier on in the episode do you think they get fixated on it uh, completely I, th- I see you know people of all ages getting you know fixated with table tennis is something that it must be that monotonous of the ball going 
and people just love it. You know, they just you know, I've seen people uh, get a table in work and they they play in the, the break times and playing at home in the garage and you know people buy robots and yeah, people just get they they buy into well, once they get hooked on table dance, it's definitely for life. It's a tough uh, tough habit to break. Well, well, I I got into it well before you came into obviously the school I'm at. Forecast would have been about a year ago with also and get his name right Barry from the Barry Russ, yeah. And obviously with my mom telling him my my sporting background, obviously he worked a little bit with me and wanted me to to progress. And I and I could see from a technical perspective, I could obviously see when I was doing something wrong with the bat, mm-hmm. and it was. I don't know, not frustrating as such, but you, I could tell, well, okay, you, you're telling me this, but I, I kind of already know because I know, I, I know it's not going where I meant, meant it to go, so I know I've done wrong because of that sporting background. So from that aspect, it was quite frustrating, but it's like, well, do I want to put it, my body through, obviously, the mental hardships and obviously the physical hardships of continuing sport or just have it as a hobby and I was like well I'd prefer to do it as a hobby it's not pleasant to lose to kids from time to time but it is frustrating yes but obviously if they're better than you I know they get satisfaction out of it yeah pleasant but it's you it's it's I think as as members of staff I think it's okay what what can I do better to obviously improve and get the better best out for them because obviously that's what those clubs are there for is to one keep them out of trouble but for them to find a sport that they can possibly become a hobby or obviously everybody's not gonna make it to the heights of international sport but to get to a high enough level that they feel that they've accomplished something yeah, that's right. Just making sure that you know, you reward that accomplishment because you know the kids they just want a good experience in sport. They want success. Um, coming into the schools, you know, I see a variety of degree of or successes, and that could be just beating your friend, you know, or beating your teacher, or and it's great seeing someone's face light up when they've you know they've completed a task that you've asked them to do is fantastic. You know, and that's why I go into schools not only to find the next you know maybe world champion but it's to make sure that everyone has a great experience of playing. And that could be just hitting 10 forehands or 10 backhands in a row, or it could be learning to put spin on the ball. And yeah, once, once you know, tail ends is quite simple. You know, it's easy to know when you've made a mistake and when you, you know, made, made a good shot. You know, the table's there, the ball goes off the side or off the end or in the net. Yeah, it's easy to sort of coach yourself in terms of what you want out of the game. And you can see with people with a little bit of ability, just learning you know, the strokes and the technique and keeping the ball low over the net and shifting the ball from the forehand to the backhand. And it's quite pleasant. Actually. You know, it's quite rewarding when you get sort of those progresses in your game. And it's really great to coach. But I think we'll go a step further. I think they got it. When you came into the school, I think they got a kick out of you beating obviously myself and the head of the park. I got a kick out of that as well, actually. <laughs> But then if you talk about my personal story in terms of trying to read your spin, it was a complete nightmare. Because it's like, well, I I think you're going to do this. And obviously we talked about that after you'd done it. Then you put a slightly different spin on under the table. It's like, well, you could, as somebody that doesn't play it, and I don't know if that's the case, if you did play it day in, day out, would you be able to read that spin, be it because you put it under the table, would a better... Table tennis player be able to read that. Yeah, yeah, they would. Yeah, it's, it's all. It's, you know, I would play someone of my same standard, and we don't even think about it. It's just ingrained when to play the right shot. It's all instinct because, like I said, you're standing a meter away from someone, balls coming at you under miles an hour. But it's all trained. You know, it's all reflexes. It's all ingrained in the hours and hours of training. You know, Top level table tennis players will train six hours every day. You know, three hours in the morning, then a break, and then three hours in the afternoon then try and do some gym work or um, core stability or whatever it may be then surrounding that. You know, we do a lot of work off the table as well, even though we have to do a lot of work on the table. We do not so much running and long distance, but it's very sharp 
boost of it now, explosive power, plyometrics and skipping. You've got to be fast on your feet. You've got to know, you know, if a ball hits the net and deviates, you know, you've got to be there. You've got to be strong. Stay close to the table. And if you are forced off the table, you've got to have a good defence game as well to, you know, keep the ball in play. Like you've seen when I was in the school, just going off the table and still getting the ball back, you know, 15, 20 feet off the table. So that's exciting. Well, that's what you've got to do because you see that in the likes of, well, well, the Commonwealth, a lot of the Commonwealth games springs to mind with Glasgow. Oh, what nationality was he? Singapore. Was it Singapore against Nigeria? Yeah, that one. And I watched that live. He's, thinking, he's backing up, backing up. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I got the feeling it's like, well, okay. All he's got to do is keep it back on the table. Mm-hmm. And you could see, I think the Singaporean one is probably getting more and more frustrated. Obviously, he ended up making the mistake. But I think as an athlete, while you're on the back foot, that's all. Well, that's what generally you've got to do is just put it back on the table. Stay in the point, yeah. Stay in the point. I keep telling the youngsters, you know, you don't always have to win points, but don't lose points. You know, test your opponent, keep that ball in play. You can't obviously you can't win a point if you make mistakes. So don't make mistakes and keep that ball in play as much as you can. And a lot of people think I got to win points. I got to win points, and they. And they you know, they're aggressive looking to win points, but you make a lot of errors. You know, there's a small bat, a even smaller ball, a small table. You know, the angles are, are quite acute and um, there's a net there to stop you from smacking that ball as hard as you want. You've got to place it, you've got to spin the ball in the right in the right place. And obviously the more, um, the higher you get in the world game, those margins become a little bit more um, improved every time because the player's hitting the ball harder. They got more power, you know. The shots are stronger, and a lot more spin on the ball. But would it come down to temperament then, in the end, for that then? Discipline, yeah. Concentration, making sure you get the right shot at the right times. It's very much, you know, playing the right ball at the right time. Trying to take the ball on top of the bounce, obviously, because you get a better, a better angle then to hit it over the net at the highest point. But sometimes the ball drops below the net. You got to pick it up with spin. So yeah, a lot with wrist, a lot with the, the form and shoulder power, but that's, you don't get many injuries in table tennis, but they're more repetitive injuries, shoulder strains and hip, hip flexors and ankles and wrists because you know, you're hitting that ball all the time. Even though it's not a heavy ball, the body has to work from, you know, from the right leg to the left leg if you're right-handed or left leg to the right leg if you're left-handed. And you've got to make sure you're transferring the weight and get maximum power on the ball. So it's a lot of repetition. But then, as well as that, Ryan, do you, do you think that, obviously we're coming back to the youngsters now, obviously the flight of the ball at times can be problematic for them because they don't understand, well, you could say the physics and the, uh, the geometry some, to some extent of what the ball's going to do. And obviously, do you think when they start off at the beginning – they're less inclined to obviously hit the ball, obviously, as you say, at its peak, as opposed to letting it drop lower and obviously making the shot more difficult. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it comes with practice, obviously, knowing how hard to hit it and when to hit it and the angles concerned with that. But, yeah, it's, um, it can be frustrating if you can't get it right. You know, a lot of practice is needed and obviously people are not willing sometimes to put in the practice. So, um so yeah, you know, it takes a bit of coaching and that's what I'm there for. Make sure I'm coaching in the right way and for players to get the best benefit and improve as fast as they can then. But coaching is, there's not a lot of coaching expertise in table lens in Wales, but we're trying to, you know, uh, roll that out a little bit more and get more people on our leaders courses and our level one, twos and threes. And I'm level four now, so I've gone right through to the top. So it's, but it's nice to mentor coaches, which is what I'm doing as well with the, um, the UKCC programme. As a level four coach, I'm able to mentor level three coaches. So I'm, I passed two through the system already. I've got another two uh, this year to pass through. So I like giving back because so many people give to me in my career and it's so important to me to give back to school children, to other coaches. You know, and if anyone wants to call me up and talk about taillands, I'm always available because I've had so much help from you know various people over the years. And do you think in terms of, this is probably not an easy question to answer now, the style of coaching, the, how you deliver it now, do you think it's changed from year one to year nine? Oh, yeah, definitely, 
year one, I would be tell, 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 because I just finished you know, playing myself. I was quite frustrated in not being able to, or, or I wanted people to play the way I played because it was all fresh in my mind. This is how you hit the form. This is how you do this. And I was trying to transfer that to, to my players early on. Quickly realized that everyone's individual players are not going to play the same way as me. I got to make sure I coach to their strengths, not just try and get them to play in a certain way. And um, yeah, now nine years down the road, I ask a lot more questions. I ask them for what they're feeling and what they're thinking and why they play the certain shot. Sometimes I don't coach at all because I let them work it out for themselves because it's very easy just to tell people this is the way to do it. And as you know, you know, that's not the way to always learn in the best way. Sometimes there's a place for that. You've got to tell someone when they're doing something wrong, but you've got to let, let them grow. And quite often I'm, I'm there in a tournament, but I'm not right there coaching them. I look from a distance and then talk about it afterwards. So it's, yeah, my coaching style has changed hugely going through the coaching qualifications to level four where it's, it's more, you want to become made redundant and that's, that's the end game. You know, if someone's good enough without me, that's, I've done my job. But then do you not think, this is not probably also not an easy question to answer, do you think sometimes athletes don't become good at good coaches because we think we know best? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's an element of that in myself. You know, I think I know it all at times. Um, but yeah, the other part of me, which is the coaching part of me, yeah, is ready to learn more always and is always thinking about how I could have improved that session or that um, match that I, you know, my players just lost or, or things I said. Because in tailors, you've only got a minute to deliver information between sets. Obviously, you've got time before the match where you work out the opponent's tactics. But during the match, you've got one minute to come back for some advice and you've got to deliver um, the, you know, the important um, points during that one minute. And if you get it wrong, then... Um, yeah, you could do more harm sometimes than good if you uh, say the wrong things or, or deliver what you're saying in the wrong way. I think that's vital that as a coach, you've got to deliver your points in, in the right way and reinforce maybe two or three points rather than spit out 10 different things they need to do because obviously it's overload and you say too much and nothing goes in at all. But in terms of, say, now from an analysis standpoint now, um, Ryan, is it would this be the case... With table tennis, like or oh, other ball sports, tennis, volleyball, would there be an essence of video analysis of of games? And obviously, you can then, as a coach and also the player, look back on different facets of the game, on where, and obviously, sit down with them and say, "Well, why did you pick that shot?" As opposed to, yeah, do you have the case with table tennis and how low down? would that system be implemented at? Yeah, there is a lot of video analysis. Um, it is quite formal in some ways with um, Dartfish and, and different uh, software uh, that we use. But even the basics of getting the players to film their match and watching it back and watching it back with them. And a lot of youngsters will, will play cross-court quite often because that's the easier shot. There's, you know, obviously the diagonal, is, there's, more, there's more space there than going down the line. So you know, little things like that. Finding out where they're serving. Are they serving short the forehand? Are they serving short the backhand? Are they serving long too often? And, and these sort of little things that we work with them. And yeah, we always get our players to, to film their, their matches and, and watch them back, but very time consuming. But yeah, it's got to be done if if you want to pick up those little points and those little points all add up to, to big gains at the end. Well, I think the higher you go up, it's less time consuming because there's somebody in place to do the analysis and they can break it down so they end up spending hours on end breaking down I don't know uh, hours of game film into minutes yeah well if you play a tournament in table tennis you can play up to sort of like 15 to 20 matches in a weekend so to watch all them back is impossible but pick out some games that you knew you were doing things wrong that I was discussing with the player, for instance, you know, you're playing your backhand across all the time. I make them watch that back then and then maybe email me afterwards saying, yeah, you know, I did play across sort of 20 times when I could have played on the line. So trying to put the onus on the players sometimes, you know, you watch it back. You're the player. I, I saw the match. I've seen it once. I don't need to see it a second time. But when you're playing, it's obviously very different to when you're watching because sometimes, you know, you 
you're practicing your serve, it looks very different to you as when you're doing it to when you're actually watching it back. It looks completely different. So really good to watch yourself back. Well, I think I think from um, like a reflection standpoint, it's a, it's a good tool because if you as the coach say, I am doing, I don't know, something dodgy or it doesn't quite look right and I would dispute that, if you've got video uh, video evidence, sorry, to back it up, well, I've got, I, I can't I can't dispute that. <laughs> it's me, and it's, it's there for all eyes to see. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what we do with the players saying, you know, you played across far too much there. No, I didn't. I said you did. Go and watch back. You know, go and watch it. You and tell. And just even something simple like how many times I played across compared to down the line. And then yeah. That's right. If it's, the evidence is there, it's there. But as in, in terms of probably progressing from that and reflecting on it, can they? And this is maybe from a negative perspective now. Can they become de- uh, too dependent on that? Uh, they can. Yeah. Um, another form of analysis we do is watch. Let's say they've. Um, They've lost in the last 16 of the quarterfinals and I make sure that they watch the final and have a look at the players that played well on the day to get the final and what they're doing. You know, we, we have a, like a sheet that we write certain things down and they have to tick then the different boxes, playing across, playing down the line, playing short, playing long. And then we obviously tally up the scores at the end. But it's a, it's a good way of kids watching the important matches, um, not on their phones, obviously um, on the social media and different things, but... Yeah, obviously that's in every day in life everywhere now, social media with the kids and that's a huge battle to get them from taking selfies to actually watching some of the major finals um, of the Blackpool Open or the London Open or wherever it may be. But why why do you think that has become a problem? Just think, you know, that's the, the age we live in. You know, people want to show off where they are in the world or what they're doing or who they're with. And yeah, you know, I do it myself. You know, I'm on social media myself. It's nice to, for your friends and family, see where you are and what you're doing and who, who you've had a picture with or whatever it may be. But yeah, the kids these days, they, it's like a habit. They just pull their phone out of their pockets. They check, you know, if they got messages. You know, it's like a, every 30 seconds they go to check if somebody else has, you know, messaged them or you know, it's quite a, a habit that they can't seem to break. But yeah, we encourage them to put their phones in their bags. Messages can wait. You know, updates or, or tweets or posts can wait. And, you know, they'll all be there when they check their phones in a few, a few hours' time. Well, that would be, that's, the, that's the argument that they don't get sometimes. It's like, well, like you say, it's not going anywhere. No, it's still but... there. That's right. They don't delete if you don't read them. So, But yeah, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge because, yeah, people like letting people know exactly at that time while they're doing this. very hard for them to wait for a couple of hours before they post or tweet. Well, I, I, it's, I, from, a, from an athlete perspective, you probably could agree with this a little bit because it, it was very much in its infancy, Facebook, Twitter, or in Instagram. Probably I've already, already retired by then, but it was not as significant as it is now. So it's like, well, you might have sent an email, but you wouldn't dare do it. Oh, I wouldn't say dare do it at a venue, but you, your family, you know, you're there anyway. So that's right. Yeah. I mean, you're probably going to be there as well if it's a, a major event. That's right. News these days is instant. You know, people want to know instantly what's happening. Um, and if we decide, Timmons Wales decide one day that we don't, updates of a, you know a certain tournament for an example the Newport Open you know and it's outraged because people want to know exactly what's going on and they don't want to wait for the report on the website afterwards they want to know up to date what's happening because that's the you know that's the way it's, it's that's the way it's traveling now so but yeah I used to put my phone as a player I used to put my phone in my bag turn it off and I put it on on the trip home late on Sunday and pick up all the messages or so yeah, I didn't have that problem, fortunately. But yeah, times change, and you have to move with them. But then the argument that people want stuff on uh, up to date, 
Well, that's very much venue dependent. Uh, we could argue weather as well. It's mm. all factors that could be that it's impossible to be able to get it up instantaneously. So it's a bit of a maybe, okay, it's the, the society that we live in that we want it now, now, now. Mm. But in some cases, that's not always possible. That's right. It's not always possible, but um, well, it's, it's when you're successful, um, you know, people like obviously letting everyone else know that they've won a, a gold medal or a title or a whatever it may be. But um, yeah, people, well, I'm the same. You know, if there's a the French Junior Open and my Welsh players out there, but I might be at home, you know, on the laptop looking at the results. Yeah, of course I want to know. I'm desperate to know if they want a match or not. But um, yeah, so I'm obviously talking in one way and then contradicting myself in the other because when the when the results are not there I'm obviously a little bit nervous to see how the players have done but, but Ryan would that would, would you being the coach and not being out there would there not be a team member that is supporting them that could phone you most of the time now and again players if we don't send them for Wales they'll go independently now and again so most of the time there's yeah we got all the information we need. Now and again, you know, you're always searching for that little bit of information. If you're not quite, if you haven't got the staff there, then you've got to, yeah, you've got to hunt for it a little bit more. Mm. And my final question for you before we wrap up the episode today is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking to, uh, speaking about, sorry, today into, into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? I would say that, Table tennis is a fantastic sport. Like any other sport, it's got its positives, it's got its negatives. If you try it and enjoy it, you know, there, there are places where you can improve. And I hope whoever's listening to this and you, you know, you're eager enough and willing enough to put in the hard work, I hope to see you. And I hope to be in your corner one day coaching you to a world title. That would be fantastic. So once again, Ryan, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. No problem. Anytime. Maybe I'll visit again in a, after, the, after the Commonwealth Games and we'll have a, a review and an update. Okay, I look forward to it. Thank you, James. Thank you. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.